Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Please be seated. Well, good evening. Uh, Before I begin this sermon, I I would like to take a moment to thank you as a congregation for the warm welcome and gracious hospitality that you have lavished upon our family since we arrived several weeks ago from Beaufort, South Carolina with an overly packed moving truck. Uh, Leaving Beaufort after some 13 years of ministry and life um, is no small thing. But your welcome has been a balm to us. The ice cream treat after last Sunday's service, massive crew to help us unload our too many belongings, assistance with tasks around the house, even helping me change out an old toilet, hat tip Cindy Enriquez, (laughs) invitations for our youngest daughter Laura to go on play dates, the many delicious meals delivered, even the painful pickleball losses, hat tip Monique and Adelia, have been great blessings, and I thank you. And we are grateful to be part of this community here at Grace. I've, I've followed you from afar for many years. I can remember in seminary, Ethan coming back, having graduated, and giving a, a testimony of how the Lord was working in the new church plant, and then following from afar as my siblings have been here, and then as I was the headmaster of the school down in Beaufort, and I had a connection here, Jake Jeffress here in the church, and I needed teachers as our little school grew and grew, and I called Jake every year and say, who's graduating this year? And he sent me some of the finest young teachers nurtured in this very congregation. And then to be nourished here last year during our sabbatical, and then at last to land here. What a tremendous blessing for our family. And as I said, thank you. Now that was the easy part. I don't know why I chose such a challenging passage to preach on for my first sermon, but we better pray before we jump into this passage from Isaiah. So please join me as I pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come as the wind and cleanse. Come as the fire and burn. Convert and consecrate our lives for our great good and for the Father's greater glory. For we ask these things in the name of his Son, Jesus. Amen. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Well, if that great hymn writer John Newton was right in his second verse from that well-beloved Amazing Grace, then those first hearing the prophecy from the prophet Isaiah are recipients of a great deal of grace, for his words from the Lord are fearsome, declarations of judgment. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. I've been taught that if you encounter a therefore in Scripture, you would be well served to figure out why what it is there for. And so please bear with me for just a, a bit of context. Uh, what we need to discover that happens before verse 14 picks up. 
At this point in history of God's people of the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel has divided into two nations. There is the northern nation, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Samaria, sometimes called Ephraim, as it's called in the beginning of chapter 28 in Isaiah. There to the north and the kingdom of Judah with its capital Jerusalem to the south. And at the time of this prophecy, both kingdoms are under dire threat of annihilation at the hands of the superpower of the day, Assyria and its ruthless leader. You have to love his name, Tiglath-Pileser III. There was Tiglath-Pileser I, the second, and the third. And he would love nothing more than to devour this juicy morsel of land that sits between three continents. See, when God gave his people the promised land, he gave them this little plot of land right there between Asia, Africa, and Europe. Juicy prime land, and Tiglath-Pileser would have wanted it. And at the beginning of chapter 28, the northern kingdom of Ephraim is given a dire judgment. They are called proud drunkards. And they are told that when Assyria comes through, they will be trampled underfoot, broken, snared, taken. Sure enough, 722, that's precisely what happens. Did you ever get a sense of glee when maybe you witnessed a sibling get in trouble? And a little smirk as you like to watch that. Or, or, or maybe when you hear of someone getting what you think they had coming and you take a little more perverse pleasure in it than you should? Well, if the southern kingdom of Judah had a smirk when hearing the judgment against their northern siblings, it's not to last long. Because as our passage picks up today, the prophet puts them in his crosshairs. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. What? You think you are scot-free? So the prophet proceeds to set forth a piercing judgment. It is a piercing judgment against the scoffing rulers in Jerusalem. And so we're going to have to, if I'm going to be faithful to this passage tonight, you're going to have to bear with me for some, for some judgment. It's, it's there in the passage. I've studied it for a couple of weeks now. And as I've looked at the judgment proclaimed against the scoffers, I've, I've seen three aspects to this judgment. The first aspect is the judgment reveals the truth of their situation, which is very precisely and often what we, we, we do want, not want to see or acknowledge about ourselves, the truth of our situation. Therefore, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made an agreement when the overwhelming whip passes through. That's Assyria. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Covenant with death? Agreement with Sheol? Refuge of lies? Shelter of falsehood? What is it that they have done? Well, perverse injustice runs rampant through the land. Unrighteousness is nowhere to be found in the leadership. And 
in the face of the threat from Assyria, rather than trusting in God, turning to him for deliverance, relying upon him, they have rather rested the nation's survival upon the shoddy foundation of lies, political machinations in secret with the idolatrous, idol-worshiping leaders of Egypt. They have said Egypt will save us when the whip comes. They think they are on solid footing. They think that the lies and the agreements that they have made will protect them, that, that when Assyria passes through, we shall be fine. And so is revealed a universal and age-old human pattern. Rather than trusting in God and in his protection, relying upon his ways, they have turned to other things for security, for refuge, for shelter. They have scoffed. They have doubted and they have eaten the forbidden fruit. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Did God really say? Is he really trustworthy? Will he really protect in the day of trouble? Now, let me ask you, do you think these rulers would have said they entered an actual covenant with death? I don't think that's how they would frame it. Would they acknowledge that they have been seeking refuge and shelter and in lies and falsehood? I, I don't think so. As is said, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Most likely they thought they were doing the very thing, taking the very actions that would bring them security and peace. We've all done it. Or at least I, I know I've done it. I don't think I'm alone. I can remember entering a covenant with death when I was five years old. Five years old, you say? A Faustian bargain at that age? <laughs> yeah, here's what happened. Uh, we were living in Ambridge. My father was in seminary, and my mother had a uh, friend in Swickley, and we went over to uh, their house to play. She had a, the, her friend had a, a son about my age. We went upstairs to the room and began to play matchbox cars. And he had a collection of matchbox cars that was phenomenal. Just my five-year-old mind just couldn't quite take it. And, and so we're playing cars, and, and there was one that just caught my eye and caught my heart. A, a little truck, silver, green windshield, a little open back that you could put things in and, and drive them around. And I just loved it. I thought, this, I need this in my life. <laughs> if I had this in my life, I, I would be complete. Time to go, Chad. I took this truck. I still have it. <laughs> I took it. I put it in my pocket. And then I put my hand over my pocket when my friend wasn't looking. And I walked down the stairs and I got in the car. And, and I wonder now, I look back, I think, I, I, I had to look very suspicious, right? I mean, there's, there's no way that someone looking at me is not going to realize he's got something. But I think my mom was preoccupied with my sister. She was two at the time, Delia, getting, getting in the car. And, and I got home. I'm in the back. I've, I've got the thing. I've got it tight in my hand. Get home. As soon as I get home, I run upstairs, climb under my bed, take it out, and I look at it, my precious. 
and I and I play with it. Entered a covenant with death. You know, I, I found it about 18 years ago. My daughters were uh, were playing with my Matchbox collection, and I saw it there, and the, the memories came flooding back. I kept it in my office for many years. I'll tell you why later. But five-year-old me, I knew I shouldn't. My parents had taught me the law of God, thou shalt not steal. I knew it was my friends and I had heard him. And I, I knew I was entering somehow with a, a refuge of lies, taking shelter in falsehood. A little five-year-old entering a covenant with death. I'd like to say this is the only time I walked in such ways. Now, I, I'm not a kleptomaniac. I don't think you need to be afraid of your cars. I think you're, you're, like, you're okay. But I haven't always trusted in God, walked in his ways. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah writes later in his book. And you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins and once you once walked, Paul writes to the Ephesians. We have turned to trust in that which we think will bring security and peace and life. And, and it takes many forms. And for some, it's, it's money. For some, it's, it's selfish ambition. For others, it's, it's the pleasures of this world. For some, it's, it's stuff. For others, it's our, our good character that we rely on. At least I'm better than that person next door. The list goes on and on in which we can take shelter. And the truth of the Lord lays bare the situation of our hearts. Having laid bare the truth of the situation, the prophet then gives the truth of our condition. Having turned from God, having trusted in Egypt, what is the condition of these leaders in Jerusalem? Well, the prophet uses some really vivid imagery to bring home the point. He says, for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the blanket too narrow to cover and to wrap yourself in. Is there any creature comfort better after the end of a long, hard day of work than to climb into your bed and stretch out? I don't know. It's, it's up there. Is there anything better than getting under a warm, large, cozy blanket during a bitter, cold, gross city winter? I've been warned about that a lot <laughs> over the last, but I have been to college here. I, I remember the cozy bed, the warm blanket. I mean, that's up there with the creaturely comforts. Is that the condition of their hearts and souls, though? No. Isaiah says, your bed is too short. Your blanket doesn't cover. You don't get rest. You don't know true peace. You are restless. You are unsatisfied. And deep down, though you will not admit it, in the depths of your soul, you are terrified. That's the condition he lays bare. And beyond time and that place, it is the condition of the human heart that does not know and entrust God. 
As Augustine opens his confessions, you have made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they find rest in you, O Lord. It's true. These things we turn to for peace and security, they they never satisfy, do they? The wealthy never get enough riches. Down in Beaufort, I can't tell you how many people I encountered in my ministry of those who had worked their entire lives, made a grip of money, made it to the dream to retire down into South Carolina in a gated community and play golf, and who then meet with me on my office and say, is that all there is? Is this all I've been working for? It's never enough. The ambitious never get enough personal glory to sate the the chasm of, of yawning need. The quest for pleasure is never sated. There's always the next pleasure. The toy grows old and you need a new one and on and on it goes. Because because none of these things you see can bear the freight of the human soul. We were made for more. The bed is too short. The blanket too small. The refuge of lies has too many holes. The shelter of falsehood is too rickety. As I've meditated upon this passage and over the last few weeks, one of the things I've been asking myself is, Chad, in what areas of your life is the bed too short? Is the blanket not covered? You know, you can ask the spirit of God yourself to reveal those things. Go to the recesses of my heart and where am I unsated? Where am I unsatisfied? Where am I restless? Where am I weary? And then under the guidance, you can ask him, Lord, in these things, am I trusting in you or am I turning to those things which are not of you? In my experiences that as we do that, he tends to answer. The truth of the situation, the truth of their condition, and now we get to the truth of the outcome that awaits as God's judgment falls. The outcome for these leaders in Jerusalem is terrifying. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it, they are told. It will take you as you are swept away by morning and by night, which is to say Egypt is not going to get it done. The lies and the falsehoods will not protect. And it's only exacerbated when we hear the Lord himself is going to enter the battlefield. Did you catch that verse? For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, As in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his work, and to do his work, alien is his work. We can miss it, but Mount Perizim and the valley of Gibeon are, are places where in years past, God worked and intervened mightily on the behalf of his people. That they facing enemies they were sure to be conquered by. God comes into the situation in these places, fights on behalf of his people, whether against the Philistines, whether against other armies, and wins a mighty battle for them. 
But now, to the scoffers in Jerusalem, he says he will turn to face them. No wonder Isaiah says it will be sheer terror to understand the message. The truth of the outcome is bleak when God enters the battlefield against you. Well, I need to broaden this again. For it's it's not only the scoffers in Jerusalem those many years ago who face certain and sure judgment. It's not comfortable to be up here and proclaim it, but it's true. We all face it. All humanity faces just judgment. Bob Dylan sang it. I'm not saying he sang it well, but he sang it. A hard rain, a hard rain, a hard rains are going to fall. The trials and the series of life come against us. The winds rise, the rains fall. Houses built on sand will not stand. Indeed, we all face a series of some sort in our lives. Trials of life. Then there's the looming shadow of death that is out there. And upon the day when we shall face a just and righteous God, who will, as we proclaim in the creed week after week, judge the living and the dead? Who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? Egypt can't save you in the face of these things. That bed is too short. That blanket is too small. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Do you know the rest of Newton's second verse? Twas grace. Kudos, gold star. Twas grace my fears relieved. And how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You know, there's a second therefore in the passage. Those of you who've been looking at the passage may be saying, why isn't he dealing with this? Well, I am now. There's a second therefore. Because you have said you have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made our refuge in lies. We have made in falsehood our shelter. Because of this, you expect now the Lord to drop a hammer here. That comes later. But first he says this. Therefore, says the Lord God, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And there it is. Grace, my fears relieved. I want you to notice the intervention of God. His initiative, his work in response to the scoffers. I have laid a foundation. I have put in place a stone. Behold, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this, of course, points us straight to our Lord Jesus. The stone, the foundation, God's answer to a rebellious humanity. Now, an astute reader might say something like, how can Isaiah say, I have laid a foundation? 
Well, this is some seven centuries before Jesus was even born. Ah, but we are talking about the one who is of the Ancient of Days, whose plan of redemption was made before the foundation of the world. This Jesus is the tested, precious cornerstone of God. Indeed, he was tested and proven. Justice was the line of his ministry as he faithfully executed God's justice at every turn. No refuge of lies or shelter of falsehood was found in him. And righteousness is plumb line. He did not turn from the right or from the left even once, but walked in perfect obedience and trust to his father. No covenants with death, no agreements with show. Tested and true and solid. And indeed, he is the precious cornerstone. Precious, beloved of his father. This is my son whom I love. The father declared over Jesus. Precious to the father from all eternity. And yet the precious one takes on human flesh to do an alien work. A strange work. For though he was justice personified, though he was perfectly righteous, even still did he submit to the unjust, unrighteous condemnation by scoffing leaders in Jerusalem as he was falsely condemned in a kangaroo court full of lies, falsely condemned and hung upon a Roman cross. In a world bent on riches, personal ambition, and pleasures, it is an act that is deemed utter foolishness. <laughs> uh, but for those who believe, it is the strange, mysterious, alien, beautiful work of God. For there on the cross, he took the judgment we deserve. He endured the overwhelming whip. He was beaten down by the overwhelming scourge of judgment and death in our place as he himself, the Son of God, was swept into death in the grave. What a strange work of God indeed. The Son of God takes the battlefield and dies. But he takes the battlefield not against us, but for us, for you. For me, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A strange, mysterious work of God. But because it was the work of God, on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead and he has broken our covenant with death. He has annulled our agreement with Sheol. And he's risen. And the same risen Jesus Christ now bids the sin-sick, the sorrow-worn, the anxious, the unsatisfied, and the weary to come to him. His call is ushered this evening to you. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
It is as Isaiah prophesied, whoever believes in me will not be in haste. And so, my brothers and sisters, my new brothers and sisters, come to him with your sins. Bring to him those areas that you are not trusting in him. The old trucks of your life. Bring it all. Bring those places where you have made refuges of lies and shelters of falsehood. He already knows of them. Bring them to him and find the forgiveness that he alone can offer. And find a foundation upon which you can build the new life that he alone can give. And as you do, I pray that you will find his love and his power coursing up through you. And as you do, I pray, too, that you will find the true shelter and you will find a true refuge. Indeed, that you'll find a, a full bed and a large warm blanket covering enough for this life and a life in the world to come. For he loves you and he bids you come. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Twas grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.